I'm excited about how technology is uh, being democratized, how it's plunging in cost. One of our missions is to positively impact one billion people. The relevance of a new technology to solving problems that affect like a billion people. All great stuff happens because someone inspires someone else to do something. The next wave of innovation is going to be eroding the territory. How's it, everybody? Welcome to 2021. Hope you had a great break in 2020 and that you are ready to take this year on with positivity and energy. These recordings of these podcasts were done during the lockdown period of our Exponential Africa live show. Hope you enjoy them. There's some amazing people on it. Uh, Take a listen and learn something. Tonight we have Arturo Elizondo, Andila Gorpa and Mark Post. Arturo is the founder and CEO of Clara Foods, a biotech company based in Silicon Valley, making real animal protein without the use of a single animal protein, starting with the world's first animal-free egg white. Clara uses wheat fermentation similar to beer and winemaking to make proteins that have the same taste and nutrition of other animal proteins. Arturo has been named the National Hispanic Institute's Person of the Year and featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Andila Gorpo is our second panelist for this evening. Andila Gorpo is a 25-year-old farmer who is passionate about sustainable agriculture, consulting, and agribusiness strategy. Andila is doing incredible things in hydroponics and aquaponics technology, using tools that are available to him. Our third panelist is Mr. Mark Post. Mark Post is a professor of psychology at the Maastricht University and co-founder of Mosa Meat, a company that is set to commercialized cultured meat in the near future. He is also the co-founder of Quorum, which uses a similar technology to make cow leather. Mark presented the world's first hamburger cultured from muscle stem cells in 2013 and laid the foundation for a budding new industry. As a faculty member of Singularity University, he is a thought leader and speaker on transforming technologies and agriculture. Let's welcome on our first guest for this evening. Arturo, how are you doing? Hi, Mick. Doing really well. Thanks for having me. It's an early day here in Silicon Valley. Thanks for joining us this early in the morning uh, over in Silicon Valley. Um, Arturo, you've had an amazing career. And um, do you want to tell us how you got into this world of of making animal-free eggs? (laughs) Yes. uh, Definitely a little bit of an unconventional path. I, you know, by heritage, I'm, I'm Mexican and I'm Texan. And so I grew up eating two eggs for breakfast every morning, grew up eating, uh, having barbecue almost every single Sunday. And animal protein was such a huge part of, of, of my upbringing. And it wasn't until I spent some time in government, uh, I, I studied government at Harvard and then decided to spend a few um, uh, quite a bit of time in government trying to understand how the food system works. And I spent some time at the U.S. Department of Agriculture in the sub-agency that regulates and oversees all the slaughterhouses in the country. And it just blew my mind how massive uh, the animal protein production complex really was. I, I just had no, I'd never questioned where my food came from. I just ate it uh, when for breakfast lunch and dinner, but never, never really thought about the process and all it took to get, to get that food to my plate. And when I learned that in the U.S. alone, we started over a million animals every single hour to feed less than 5% of the global population, it was, it was mind-boggling. And I then decided to spend some time in Geneva studying global food security and began seeing the trend globally. Um, in particular, you know, how it's not just the U.S., but across, across the world, especially in developing countries, the first thing people do when they enter the middle class is they buy animal protein. And then understanding how much water and land and energy it took to produce all that protein um, was, was shocking. I had no idea that, we, that, that animal agriculture emitted more greenhouse gases 
than the entire transportation sector globally, than all the cars, ships, planes, boats in the world combined, that we use over one third of the world's fresh water for animal agriculture and a third of the world's arable land. And as demand continues to rise, there's going to be more and more strain on these resources. And there literally is not enough land or water on the planet to satiate that kind of demand, especially going into 2050. And so I knew that there had to be a way of, of making food more sustainably. But the key for me was, how do you make it delicious? How do you get the same texture and functionality and taste that people have grown to love and expect from their foods? Um, because ultimately, the, the, in order to drive global change, we have to be able to meet people where they're at. And that's why I started Clara Foods, because we can leverage biotechnology to make, to make protein that has a taste and the functionality that people have come to expect from their, you know, from their breakfast omelets, you know, from their baked goods, from, 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 you know, in their barbecues and without having to, without having to produce it, it um, using animals. And so our process allows us to have distributed fermentation where we can literally brew our protein in every country on earth especially those where you can't grow animals. And as these countries get affected by climate change, by these pandemics, is that it's going to be more and more important to have a reliable food supply. And that's where companies like us um, can, can, can really bridge that gap. No, I think it's, 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 it's such an exciting space and it's incredible what you're doing. And, you know, just to have that moment when you get inspired to, take on such a mammoth project like you like you have it's really amazing and you know <laughs> you've been going for the last couple of years right and, and you've raised about 50 million dollars so far uh you know w when you raise that type of money and you're creating a new um product or new invention that doesn't exist well what's your first what's your first step yeah, it's a <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. We've yeah, we've raised um, over fifty million dollars, and we've been in, we've been in R and D for the last five and a half years. So we've been we, we we've been pretty under the radar, really working on developing this technology. Ultimately, for me, the, the most important piece is how do we make this accessible to everyone? And so we've invested a lot in R and D to continue to go down the cost curve, so that. This can be accessible to people all over the world, not just in San Francisco or Silicon Valley or New York, but but everywhere. Um, and so, in the last uh, you know, we, in the last five and a half years, um, we've really spent a lot of our resources building out an R and D infrastructure and starting to manufacture uh, products. So we actually are. Um, are, are, are ramping up manufacturing and are launching two of our first products this year, which is very, very exciting. And we've begun shipping one already. Well, that's really incredible. Thanks, thanks so much for that. We're going to come back to you in a bit. Um, and our, next, our next guest for this evening is Andila Ngobo. Andila, how are you doing? How's it, Mick? Thank you for having me. Great to have you on the show. Um, you've been doing some amazing things on the ground here in South Africa. Uh, do you want to tell us about some of your initiatives and uh, s some of the new technologies that you're looking at using that are available? Right. So I obviously come from South Africa in uh, quite a big province of KwaZulu-Natal where food security uh, based on the large population can be a bit of an issue. Um, especially in the sense of trying to make security a personal, more of a personal personal issue as opposed to looking at it as a governmental issue as such. So um, at Tusogusha Farming, we have been trying our best to innovate and use um, innovative technology to obviously try and see if we could reduce the um, the turnover time and growing period of vegetables as they are they do form quite a large part of the staple food in, in, in KZN, KwaZulu-Natal more specifically. Um, as much as we do um, consume a lot of grains and starch, but our vegetables are highly more affordable than our meat or protein, protein or meat products. 
So, you know, we've been supplying uh, our, our local community. And as we had been developing, we tried out many types of farming operations, such as our greenhouses to start off with. Um, obviously, that was for us a using fertigation and, and drip irrigation as a more efficient uh, way of using um, water to grow vegetables as opposed to open land. Uh, but of course, we also figured out that that's not the most affordable and, and, and the cheapest form of, of, of farming that can be made available to a lot of our rural communities. So we've then gone on to working on the journey of trying out hydroponics. And we are again trying to use as much as we have available to us to efficiently produce vegetables and turn around time of supply. No, awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for that. I think I think it's a really exciting space, just being able to uh, grow in a new way. Uh, our next guest we're going to move on to is Mr. Mark Post. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Hi, Mick. Thanks for having me. And um, you know, Mark, you you've you've got this incredible um, accolade of having created the first three hundred thousand dollar. A cultured meat burger, which you did in 2013. Um, you know, you've had an incredible uh, development and growth since then. What's been happening in the last couple of years, and and when can we see your products coming to the shelves? Ah, the the journalist question. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, just like Arturo said, we uh, spent a lot of time in R and D, um, further developing and improving the product, and of course. Uh, this was not really a product because it was a quarter million euro or $300,000 for a hamburger, which was ridiculous. Um, and it also shows, I think, one of the, the things that Arturo also touched upon is that uh, you have to find a way to make these technologies that in our case are really coming from the medical field um, to make them cost effective. And that requires, it's doable, but it requires a lot of uh, research and development. Um, so that we have spending the last couple of day, couple of years on that, on that those particular issues. Also, just improving uh, the product, adding fat tissue to it, adding fibrous tissue to it, and um, <clears throat> I guess we uh, in 2016 we started the company Moza Meat, and that it really aims to commercialize and scale up production. So we are. Uh, currently in, in the fundraising to get our first pilot plant uh, up and running. So the technology is pretty much um, established, still on the expensive side, but um, it will enable us to start um, a, a pilot plant production and, um, you know, and to the market, um, <coughs> high end, um, still high price and kind of low um, uh, scale will probably be in the next two and a half, three years, two, two to three years. Um, low price, maybe in that time, but likely it's going to be a little bit longer uh, than that. And just do you want to explain to the audience what is cultured meat? How do you actually make the meat? Yeah, well, it's it's meat as you know it. Um, it just made for, and it's made from the same cells but not in a cow. It's, we take the cells from the cow, let them grow tremendously, and let them produce meat, which they kind of do by themselves. So it's essentially the same tissue, except that the cells are growing outside of the cow instead of inside of the cow. And the reason why we're doing that is, well, actually Arturo mentioned all the reasons. Meat is a highly val valued part of our food supply we love it and um, and it's quite honestly it's quite nutritious it has a lot of uh, good qualities to it um, but it's also very resource intense um, and arturo mentioned those um, so very resource intense and that's because these animals are not necessarily very efficient in making that meat and that's where this technology comes in where we basically use the cells to do essentially the same, but in a much more efficient way. So interesting. Eh? Wow. Thanks so much for that. We're going to move into the main uh, section of the panel. Um, guys, as you saw a bit earlier, there's been some incredible uh, cases of unity in Ubuntu where, the, where initiatives have been started to try to solve some of this hunger crisis that's been created by COVID-19. 
what are some of the examples that you guys have seen globally in your own uh, areas and uh, any practical tips you can give people? Let's start with you, Arturo. Hmm. You know, I, what, what I've seen um, that has really inspired me uh, specifically ha has been, especially for, for um, in places like New York City, where there are, are young people going out to the grocery stores um, in, on behalf of, of, of the elderly who can't leave their home for risk of, of contracting COVID. Uh, as you know, New York City has been one of the hotspots of uh, the epicenter of the COVID epidemic here in the U.S. And I've been really inspired by, by, by the level of solidarity um, of, of the, the, the level of solidarity across, across people. And, you know, I think the, the, the sad part is that, you know, I think to, in, to, to a large degree, our food system um, is still so, so requires so much human interaction. Um, and, 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 and I think what, what, what's exciting is seeing all of these um, supermarkets and stores being able to actually do contactless delivery, you know, how to leverage technology to not have to put people into harm's way. And so there are um, grocery stores, like um, I think like Target or, or other stores like Best Buy that, um, that end up being able to, 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 to deliver um, products, whether food or otherwise, to consumers without have, without there being any human interaction, which I think has been um, really exciting for 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 me to, to to see how technology can be used as a as a as a great force for good um, during these times. Yeah, I think um, you know it, it's it's interesting that the COVID has kind of influenced uh, countries in different ways. Um, so there's a huge difference, uh, not only in the amount of infections and the, and the number of deaths, but also in economic consequences and all sorts of other uh, consequences. And I, I may be a little bit biased, but um, um, my sense is that countries where the government is a strong influence and is, is sufficiently kind of um, accepted in, in, the, in the population actually has a huge um, impact on how you can deal with um, externalities like these. Um, so it strikes me that, that countries with kind of weak governments and weak uh, governmental institutions have much more trouble coping with this than, um, than, than countries which have strong governments. The other thing that strikes me really is that, and this is kind of on the negative side, I guess, is that every country seems to do this on its own um, without looking across the border. I mean, the Netherlands is a good example. We are a huge exporter of um, agricultural goods. So this could have been an opportunity to ramp that and to start helping a lot of other countries in um, getting, getting through this crisis. But I have not seen such a thing. So not kind of cross-national solidarity um, and and development of plans to um, distribute um, its huge uh, agricultural wealth uh, to other countries. That's quite an interesting take on it. I think we need to get in touch with the global multinational food companies and get them to spread the love. Uh, and Dila, how, yeah, how can we help alleviate this current crisis? Well, I mean, the culture of... Um, NGOs coming together to supply food parcels in South Africa has been a long-standing culture. In fact, we've had issues where we've had to come together to assist people who were recovering from a flood relief, a flood, a flood situation. So we had a flood relief initiative. So the, the the efficiency of coming together and understanding our roles in terms of giving out food parcels to those who we expect are going to be hit a whole lot harder than those who are privileged and are able to, you know, go to the supermarket. We even had issues of stockpiling at some point. So the privileged were really able to access food in bulk amounts to keep and store this, this, this pandemic. But we also had a, quite, a, quite a big come around with a lot of initiatives coming into play to ensure that those who can't afford to, to, to purchase food in bulk are, are seen to. Um, however, I also do, uh, I did notice, as Otorius mentioned, um, 
quite a lot of our delivery services that were prone or known mostly to, to, to deliver food products were also quite open to looking at other essential items, you know, such as your, your, your electronic items or any other items that one didn't necessarily need to leave the house to actually go and purchase. Uh, however, coming back to, to Mark's point, I do think that there was a lot of uncertainty, especially with the measures that were put in place um, for, in regards to COVID, as we were very unsure whether or not we were able to even cross our borders when it comes to our supply. Uh, something as simple as we had to reduce our supply radius and we were limited only to our our city, the city of Peter Maritzburg, um, because it was deemed safer to do so than to have employees and goods uh, crossing borders based on the issue of, of, of spreading the COVID, the, the COVID virus. Wow, so interesting. Uh, Mark, sorry, I just want to go back to you there. I, I cut you off. You, you had something to say about the global multinationals? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so companies are stepping in, which is good, and individuals and NGOs are stepping in. That's, that's obviously very good news, and it shows kind of the, the, the nature of mankind. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, we shouldn't necessarily be relying on those. Um, we should be able to organize this in a better way so that um, internationally you can set up distribution systems. And, and I do um, uh, see that, you know, when there is uh, travel restrictions and, and all those type of things that you can, you know, if you are a little bit more creative, uh, you can set up a transport system uh, without any risk of uh, contamination. And that could have been done uh, two or three months ago. Um, it's, it really is a, in, in Europe, uh, across Europe, um, all the borders were closed except for food transport, which makes total sense. Yeah, so I think it's an it's a, it's a increasingly uh, important issue. And, you know, as the world is getting smaller, we, we, keep, we are adding about 80 million more mouths to feed every year. And by 2050, that might be as much as 9.6 billion people. Arturo, how do we prepare for this and be sustainable? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's an incredibly daunting, you know, thing to fathom. Um, how we actually end up doing this in a way that doesn't destroy the planet, you know, the planet that we inhabit. And what I come back to is that this, you know, this pandemic is unfortunately a sign of, I think, where we're headed, um, that, that these will only become more, more common, um, that these, that this is going to become our new normal. Um, you know, the, these pandemics, so many, if we don't, if we don't act now, these things are going, are, are going to continue happening. So many of the pandemics today are, um, and that we've had in the last hundred years, the vast majority of them come from animals um, and, and, and from our consumption of them. And, and I think that there, 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 there's going to be a need to completely reimagine our food system. And I think ultimately this really exposed the cracks in our food system that it's, it's one thing to produce a lot of food, but it's another, and it's another thing to produce food safely. And that's where I think technologies um, like ours will, will be able to help again, bridge, bridge that gap and um, and be able to have distributed infrastructure where company where where countries you know you know to, to Mark's point is that there was a lot of you know we were trying to ship products from our manufacturing center to our customers and there were some countries that were on lockdown and it was very hard to get things out and we cannot allow that to happen and have people go hungry um, and so what 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 I see um, as a as an a very interesting opportunity is that um, with with biotechnology with some of these with some of these new technologies is that each country can provide their core set of products of foods. You know, we for example can make our egg protein literally in anywhere in the world where there's access to some sugar and a fermenter and water. 
Um, and, 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 and I think that there's a huge opportunity for, for us to, um, to really take that, take this learning experience right now as an opportunity to, to fundamentally change the way that, that, that we approach food production. Because right now it's it's just not sustainable. I mean, you look at at the U.S., the meat processing facilities, um, they're Tyson, Smithfield, Purdue, the largest meat companies in the U.S. are having massive COVID outbreaks of all of these people because they have to be packed together to make this food. And we're putting people in harm's way. They are dying. And, and, And we're using this incredibly antiquated way of making our food that doesn't need that no longer needs to take place we don't need that anymore it's now just a matter it's because it tastes good uh, and, and 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 nothing else that's i think that's so interesting do you, do you guys want to add to that yeah no i think um uh, arturo made made excellent points um uh, interestingly, the, the meat industry, um, same as in the U.S., uh, we had our uh, set of contaminations in, in the meatpacking industry as well. Um, and in our case, I don't know about the U.S., but I suspect it's kind of the same. It was more related to how the workers actually are uh, recruited and housed um, than the conditions in the slaughterhouses themselves. Um, so these are mostly migrant workers. Uh, that are housed under pretty uh, abysmal conditions, very cl- in close confinement. They are bussed by companies to um, to the slaughterhouses, and um, that's where actually it's it's not in the slaughterhouses themselves, but in the housing and in the buses where the the cross contamination um, uh, occurs. So it, but it's I, I think it's a it's kind of in in the whole scheme, it's a it's a detail. Um, in the whole scheme, we see that um, we have to feed 10 billion people with increasing needs for animal proteins because people get wealthier and get more um, kind of uh, uh, sophisticated, if you like. And that is just not doable with the current inefficiencies in the system. Um, there are a large number of inefficiencies in the current food system, um, the way we grow, we make animal proteins is one of them because the animals are just not very efficient. Um, there's a lot of food waste. 40% of all that's grown um, is thrown away, never gets to the plate. Um, and uh, there is a dis- distribution inefficiency, as we now see kind of enlarged by COVID, but has been around for a very long time. And as Andila says, uh, you know, we have been relying on food distribution in parts of South Africa for for years. It's kind of a, 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 a normal thing. And, you know, those distribution systems uh, are becoming increasingly important because hunger is not really necessary. It's mostly a distribution problem. Um, and if we take out the inefficiencies in the food production system, this planet has enough resources to feed 10 billion people. So I love that point. I, th- I think there's, there's, there's two, two ideas that you're touching on here. The one is from uh, David Roberts, where he speaks about the, the ice trade and the spice trade, how the spice trade got disrupted by the ice trade uh, by, by cutting these big blocks of ice out in lakes. And then when they moved from the, cutting the blocks of ice out in lakes into a synthetic ice machine, People thought that the synthetic ice machine wasn't as good as the ice in the lakes. But it's really just a, a, a question of the process and how do we actually create the end product. And I think that's what you guys are, are, are really amazing at. And what, you, what you're doing is reinventing the actual process to getting to the end product, which is so exciting to, to solve this big problem. Um, the, other, the, other, the other thing that you were talking about is that... Um, we, which, which has come through as a question, is how is this going to affect global supply chains? And do you think it's going to move more from a globalized s- supply chain to more of a local supply chain? Um, um, Mark, kind of course, or, or anyone uh, wants to take this? Yeah. 
Sorry. Well, as as Arturo mentioned, uh, you know, you can he he can make his um, egg proteins everywhere in the world if you have access to a few um, items, um, and you don't need kind of the vast resources that you require to uh, to do this through animals. It's the same for us. You could do that. Um, on the other hand, there's also kind of an economic question in the end. Um, because you can democratize this, but if you want to have your, um, you know, your your um, uh, hundred grams of um, uh, Clara food albumin um, five cents cheaper or two cents cheaper, then or or a half a cent cheaper, then you need to scale up. Um, and then you get to where we are in the traditional situation where large uh, multinational companies have scaled up production and centralized uh, production just to make things a couple of cents cheaper. Um, and so that's kind of the economic law that is um, almost um, independent of the technologies that we are developing. Um, sure, the technologies by themselves lead them to, um, to or have the ability to become democratized and and start you doing small scale production, and I certainly hope that that will be the case. But there's no guarantee, I think, because um, as long as consumers are still willing to save like uh, a couple of cents on a product, um, scaling up to large industries is kind of a economic law. Yeah, oh, thanks so much for that. I think to to add to that, and Mark, to, to your earlier point about how we've seen, you know, I think we can use this pandemic as a case study for how the world will respond, um, which is that instead of looking outward, the world looked inward, right? Countries and governments looked and 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 locked everything up to contain it, and and. You know, and in many ways, supply chains were massively affected. Um, and so I think what's, I mean, just, just looking at, at, at this at this pandemic as an example, um, I think there's going to be more focus from governments of, of saying, all right, which countries are we too dependent on for key resources? And how do we find ways to resource us internally in case something like this happens again, where we need to contain something and close close our borders? Um, and, and, and I think that there's going to be more governments looking at opportunities to see, all right, are we, are we depending too much on certain countries for these products that we could potentially make in here? Uh, and, 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 and have it homegrown. And so I think that there's going to be more of a push given that I think, again, COVID has, has, has really exposed a lot of the cracks in our current food system of finding ways to, to, to see how we can produce more things at home. Whether or not, and to, 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 to Mark's point, it's not as efficient as having the scale and having a particular place to, to have massive production, but it, it seems like for a lot of these governments, um, you know, a few cents more for their products may be worth it um, to, to have that sense of comfort to know, all right, if this country locks down or um, and, 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 shuts, uh, and, and shuts down export, exports, how can we still feed our people here? Interestingly interesting. enough. Um, Adele? We've experienced quite a lot of this, quite a lot of this in, our, in our country where the large majority of the consumer is currently consuming a lot of the products that are dumped due to excess, uh, excess supply from, from various countries. So we have been in a space where we've been taking on off for quite a while. We've seen quite a lot of farms getting um, or becoming liquidated due to the fact that the product is no longer efficient or economic, economic to economical to produce within within the country. Um, a lot of that obviously has been caused by the very stringent uh, bias biosecurity um, attached to pr the production of, of of animal products, of course, which is quite unaffordable uh, if you're not within scale. Uh, and a lot of the consumers then shy away from our local products due to how expensive they are to buy, and we end up buying a lot of the dumb products. Um, I also believe, though, that there is quite a lot of education that needs to come with understanding uh, the process of obviously producing food. 
because uh, I have learned quite, interest, uh, quite an interesting amount of, of innovative and more technological ways of, of, of producing um, um, meat products uh, due to having read quite a lot of the work that Mark and Arturo have been doing. Um, and that's not a very common, a very common or conventional way of, 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 of uh, well, getting food in our, within our country. So a lot of education still needs to come with understanding the possibilities that are out there in terms of how we could potentially um, produce uh, protein products. Um, Angela, I've got a follow-up question for you from uh, Amos. Amos is asking you, how do you assist new entrants into farming? Uh, I just acquired one hectare of land to do veg farming. How do I start? What technology should I consider? Yeah, from a from a space perspective, I, I always I've always said that if you're going to go the conventional or uh, open field um, way of producing uh, cash crops, which is obviously the probably the most affordable form of, of of farming in our country, you would have to at least have ten hectares of land in order to be able to sort of rotate uh, your 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 production and not uh, and, and and not sort of. In a sustainable way, basically, you you want to do so in such a way that's not going to uh, waste, you know, water uh, or uh, destroy your soils. So I, I often say ten hectares, but obviously, understanding the dynamic of, of of land issue in our country, um, a lot of people are wanting to become more more sustainable and and more food secure, obviously, by producing their own food. So I mean, on one hectare of land, it only makes sense to go extremely technologically technologically advanced as you possibly can, because you still want to get um, quite a high number of units coming out of that very small piece of land. So obviously exploring options like vertical farming, um, vertical hydroponics, where you are using uh, various levels of, of, of space within that one hectare plot, but to try and produce, produce quite, a lot of, quite a lot of vegetables or, or crops is probably the way to go. So a, a lot of uh, research will have to go into vertical farming. Thanks so much for that. Um, we've got a great question from Tiffany Voro who's uh, tuning in from San Francisco. And Tiffany's asking, if synthetic and cellular agriculture takes off, what do you think will be the role of today's farmers in tomorrow's markets? <laughs> um, that's a great question from Tiffany. Um, yeah, we, I mean, farmers are, in my mind, maybe Adila should um, answer this because he is, he is a farmer, but in, in my mind, they are the ultimate entrepreneurs. They basically extract value from the land that they have. Um, and if you are, um, uh, so, and, and they need to produce food, uh, and we need, to, we need them to produce food, and we need them to continue to do, uh, them doing that. Um, so what we are seeing, I think, in, in certain areas, um, definitely here in the Netherlands, that a lot of farmers just stop farming animals uh, because there's no money in it or there's too much political um, kind of controversy around it. Um, so they stop farming animals um, for different reasons. Um, and they move to other crops, crops that um, eventually can be used as feedstock for instance, to make uh, cultured meat. So we are um, discussing this with a couple of farmers. This is a very local and regional initiative uh, to transform uh, the industry and to, to also get um, the feed industry, the animal feed industry, which is a big kind of partner in this as well, um, to get them online so that we can start producing crops that can be used um, to feed cells instead of cows. Um, or pigs and uh, farmers are into that. They, um, at least the forward-thinking farmers, not everybody, but the forward-thinking farmers. And the ones who are really good entrepreneurs will adapt and they will use their land for value creation uh, for um, crops that can eventually feed into the fermenters that Arturo is using or the fermenters that we are using. Arturo, do you want to add to that? <laughs> I think uh, I, I think what Mark has said is um, uh, I think very astute. I, I don't have much to add there. Um, Brilliant. Except for for the fact that 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, at least in the, you know, especially in developed countries, farmers are such a small percentage of our population now. And I think to Mark's point, um, you know, um, they're very entrepreneurial. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of opportunities there um, for um, for people uh, like them. And especially, I mean, it's not just synthetic and, and sort of agriculture, but there's plant-based proteins. You know, you just announced, you spoke earlier today, uh, make about the live kindly company and there are so many companies that 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 are focusing on growing um using plant matter and plant proteins to develop really great products uh and so i think that the future of food will will be a mix of different technologies including plants where i think that there's obviously a lot more synergy and overlap uh with today's farmers and uh, you know Arturo, i think a big hurdle in in gaining adoption of all these new technologies We'll be getting the public to, to uh, come on board and as well as governments being op- open to trying a different way. You know, already we are seeing that many people don't actually believe the type of products. We've had a few comments that people don't believe of the type of products that you guys are creating. So how do we get the public to, to uh, understand that there are different ways of making food uh, in an open and honest way? And how do we get the governments to start changing policies to allow these new types of foods into new markets? Mm-hmm. When you say believe, do you mean like people don't believe they exist or they don't believe in the products as a, as a path forward? So just as an example, some of the comments uh, we received in Facebook were, what do you mean making eggs without chickens? They don't actually believe it's, it's true. <laughs> it's some type of uh, magic. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, so it's a great question. I'm, I'm glad I asked to clarify because the technology we're using, as crazy as it sounds, has been around for 40 years. Making animal proteins without using animals has been around since the 80s. The first ever protein made without using an animal was insulin. Before, before the 1980s, you had to, companies had to kill pigs and then extract the insulin protein from their pancreas, purify that, and then inject it into people. And every single diabetic who had um, who was taking insulin was getting it from their pigs, from pigs. And you needed over fifty thousand pigs to make one kilo of insulin. And Genentech, this biotech company, found a way to um, to use to use fermentation and use a microorganism uh, by by encoding the same gene that codes for that protein into the microbe, and then a fermenter was able to recreate the insulin protein. And fast forward to today, over ninety eight percent of insulin in the world is made using fermentation instead of animals. And so we take that same technology and apply that to food because we know it's life-saving, we know that it's safe, and we know that it's scalable um, and ultimately can, um, can, can, can ensure the same functionality um, of, of the animal proteins that it was meant to replace. Um, and so that, 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 that's really where you know, the technology that we're using is very much, very, very real. Um, and there's now a lot of cheese production is made using this exact same technology as well to make the rennet protein that used to come from the from from calf stomachs. Now it's all it's ninety percent of it is made using fermentation, um, and so we've seen this adoption obviously in 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 applications that people don't really know about, and so therefore it seems very distant. Um, but it's it, it, it's ubiquitous, um, and we're just taking it a step further by saying, look, it's it, it's been around for decades, it's been scaled. How do we make this accessible to solve a problem that that is critical, which is how do we scale this up in a way that that fundamentally makes it different in terms of our water, land, and energy usage as a as a world? No, thanks for that answer. Yeah, Martha, I think um, I think you also have to, sorry. Yeah, I think you ha- you also have to kind of analyze where this um, where this uh, disbelief or maybe even stronger reservation is coming from. We are biologically programmed not to eat new things. 
things that we don't know. Um, and of course, these are new products. They are made in a different way. They are essentially the same products, but they are made in a different way. So they are seen as new and people have to develop trust in those. Um, and well, first of all, you have to have products. So I'm glad that Arturo is launching his products um, very soon now so that people can actually see for themselves, you know, this is a real product that I like and that I, that I can eat and that is safe, that has passed regulations, that has passed all kind of the, the national or international tests and I can eat it. Um, and once people develop that trust and which will take time, they will start um, adopting new stuff because on the other hand, we are perfectly capable of eating all sorts of foods currently that we don't quite understand or that we don't quite know its composition of. So uh, once you develop that trust, you can, you can get a, a long way, but that trust has to be developed and that just takes time. Um, we see on the government side, that um, uh, to, to my delight, I must say, a lot of governments actually actively um, looking into these technologies and um, starting to uh, promote them, either financially support them or um, have at least discussions on how can we regulate this? How can we um, ease the way into um, uh, marketing? So from the governmental side, we are, uh, and not everywhere, but in a lot of places, we are seeing um, uh, good efforts to, uh, to help. Thank you. So we're getting a whole bunch of questions from the audience around what, what sort of studies should kids do to get into these types of fields? What can you learn when you're growing up, when you're in school? How can you follow this? And um, Ruth, Ruth Granham is asking, Arturo, how do we bring this technology to Africa? Um, yeah, great, great, um, great questions. I, I mean, firstly, from a, um, from a, to answer your first question on, on studies, anything STEM related is huge. We, um, in, especially in San Francisco, there's a shortage of of, of chemical engineers, of, of molecular biologists, that um, of, of scientists um, and engineers who work with biological systems. Um, and so, but ultimately, anything you know, computer, data related, software related, for you know, in, in so many ways, biology is um, is really is, is being completely transformed as well by. By um, by data and software uh, in a way that that I think that particular you know uh, those particular disciplines are going to continue growing massively um, and so I would say anything you know science related and math related um, are going to be critical um, for um, for for these professions um, and I think number two is on on your question in terms of how we can bring this to South Africa you know ultimately you know, we've I, I I was there. Um, Last year for the uh, for the South Africa um, summit and uh, for the Singularity University summit and what I've been really excited about is 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 how excited um, people are about the about about this new about the new food space um, and I think the the most critical pieces for companies like us is to have the right partners whether as Mark mentioned from a government stance point of view ultimately we can scale it up anywhere right now we're prioritizing um, basically which countries do we expand to first and our way of identifying those markets and those opportunities are by one question which is do we have the right partner there? I think if there's a legitimate interest from government or from established incumbents like companies, for um, for example, like RCL Foods and others who already have a presence in those markets, it's much easier for companies like us to uh, to 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 enter those markets because um, we have partners that understand those much better that then. Um, than we can. And so that's, uh, that's where I see the biggest opportunity. Awesome. No, thanks. And um, a question for Andila here from uh, Mufundu. If we move to vertical farming, hydroponics, new ways of farming, is there any role bees can play for pollination services? 
Sure. Well, we've 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 faced quite a a, a big challenge with um, our 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 new ways of producing um, our crops in our country because a lot of the uh, seed that we have been using and a lot of the plants that we've been producing have obviously become more hybrid, which means we don't really depend on bees pollinating um, any of our crops in order for them to uh, give us yields. So we've had a, we, from the research that has been going around, uh, we have seen a decline in the number of bee colonies within within our, 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 our country really uh, due to these issues. Um, when it comes to uh, hydroponics and, and, and vertical and vertical farming, I think obviously there are certain designs that could potentially um, be established, obviously, to sort of integrate uh, the technological and more scientific ways of producing food with that of nature. But I'm unsure simply because a lot of the crops that do require a lot of intervention with nature and bees as such are usually things like um, uh, more, the food crops basically. So you get things like butternut, um, peppers, tomatoes, plants that flower and produce food, a food type of crop. And it's very difficult to grow those kind of crops in, in, in a, vertical, um, a vertical setup simply because they're too heavy. Um, or they go too big, or the root system is just not designed. It's, 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 it's a whole lot deeper. So we obviously are mindful of the fact that we can't go all the way um, uh, vertical farming for most crops just yet. But um, for those uh, leafy crops, obviously, like uh, a cabbage, spinach, Swiss chard, uh, those are perfect for, for, for vertical farming. Obviously, don't need much um, inter uh, nature intervention. Awesome. Uh, thanks for that. Mark, here's one for you. Uh, do you know any companies in South Africa or Africa that are producing cell-based meat? Um, no, I don't. I don't think there is any at this. Uh, Donovan Wool. Um, How does one start such a thing? Um, well, um, you know, quite a few have started. Um, easiest is to start, um, you know, based um, somewhere from any university where you have all the equipment, all the labs to um, to basically use the, the the medical technology to to make this happen. Um, that would be the easiest. What we're also seeing is that there are a couple of companies now arising that kind of. Um, provide support um, for you know, either software, um, hardware, um, growth factors, um, culture medium components, where people step in and see where, 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 they, where they can make a change and can make cheaper um, supplies or more efficient supplies for this, uh, this technology. So there's, a, there's a, a wide variety of companies now coming up um, to support the eventual um, uh, cultured or cultivated meat uh, companies. But if you want to start with cult cultivated meat itself, um, probably easiest is to start um, from a university type of last. Thank you so much. Um, guys, we have run out of time. We've got so many questions going on and uh, we just want to ask each of you if you can leave us with a uh, closing statement around uh, the food of the future being secure. Um, just, you know, what advice can you give for the public? Let's start uh, with you, Arturo. <laughs> uh, well, it's, first of all, thank you very much for having us, uh, for having me, Mick. Uh, really appreciate sharing some of our perspectives and what we're seeing um, happen on our side and, and, and from our perspective. But I'd love to... Um, Definitely hear more from others. You know, we're we're, we're online, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook. Feel free to reach out to us. Um, info at clarofoods.com. But I think for 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 me specifically, in terms of of uh, what's most exciting is that I think Africa in general, but South Africa specifically, has there's so much potential to be an early adopter and a champion of these technologies. And I think for so many um, for so many countries, and, and um, where where this will really I think determine who who's a leader in the space and who gets left behind. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity for um, 
for for there to be active collaborations between our companies uh, and those those on the continent. Um, and I think South Africa is a perfect market for this, uh, for some of these technologies. As we've seen, there's already been a lot of really interesting adoptions of new food technologies like the Beyond Burger um, and others. And I think that that's only going to increase. So I'm very optimistic um, for the future, um, especially as consumers driving a lot of these trends towards uh, better foods. Now, awesome. Just one last question from the, for, that was asked from, from Shane Mann. Uh, does your eggs have cholesterol? <laughs> Zero cholesterol. So we only produce the proteins, <laughs> not uh, anything else. And so, yes, our, 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 our eggs are 100% cholesterol-free. Thanks, thanks for that. Uh, Mandela, do you want to leave us with some closing Great remarks? Um, I think that uh, a lot of the young people should use uh, the opportunity available through our education, um, our, our education of the faculties that we study in food, in food technology and food in general, and use the opportunity to break the generational mindset of trying to solve um, local issues. I think that if we started to employ more of a global view, uh, in terms of innovation, we could actually use the resources we have and have a young crop of very well-versed young people who understand food technology better coming through and changing the conventional thought of food production. Thanks so much. Mark, over to you. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would encourage everybody to uh, remain open-minded, which is difficult when it comes to food because we have such a emotional relationship with it and with, with the way it's being produced. Um, but be open-minded. There are many, many different ways of producing food. Um, and there are many, many different ways of producing, uh, different, different ways of producing the same food that we already know. Um, and just be open-minded and think about all the potential ways where you can grow either sugars, amino acids, uh, proteins, or, or fats, um, or use them from different sources. We have seen insects. We have seen a lot of vegetable sources uh, coming up lately. Um, they're all very good sources of um, uh, food for us and, and be open-minded and look at, look at all of them and also be critical of the inefficiencies in our current food system. Before I say thanks if to I the could, panel, if I, could I just want to... One... Sorry, Arturo? Can I add one more point? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, I think to, to, to Mark's point about being open-minded, you know, I'd love to take that a step further and encourage people to get excited about this. Like this is, these foods are not, are, are, are delicious, but also uh, mean so much, so much to the planet and to our health. They're, they're free of antibiotics of hormones. Um, and I think to the extent that, 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 that people can get educated about this to be advocates um, for these technologies, ultimately the reasons why these companies exist is because, and why we can get funded to scale production is because we can, because there's demand for these products. And that comes from the consumer. And so each of you as individuals, each of us can play a role in, in helping advocate and, 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 and you know, have dinner conversations around, around these technologies. Um, there's a podcast called the Business for Good Cost podcast, or there's a few books available as well, also a ton online. Um, and so I, I'd encourage everyone to, to, to get really excited about this because the, the, the future looks very bright and there are very real solutions to fundamentally making the world a better place. Love that, love that. Thanks so much for, for sharing that. Um, and I totally agree with you. It's really about education and awareness. And uh, the more we can become aware of what is available through technology, the more we can use it for our benefit. So uh, before I say thanks to our panel, I just want to let you all know not to go anywhere. We have the Share the Tech Love segment coming up. We will be giving away some awesome prizes. And then we have a great performance from the Black Cat Bones Thanks so much to our panel. It's been a really, really amazing time and a pleasure having you all here today. Uh, you know, thanks for sharing some of your exciting food projects globally. We can't wait to taste the cultured meat and the eggs. And uh, when lockdown ends, we look forward to visiting your farm and dealer. We are so grateful. Thank you all. Thank you so much.
That's all we have time for today. Hope you really enjoyed that. Please make sure to go and subscribe to our Exponential Africa on our podcast channels or our YouTube channel. Uh, we really, really would appreciate, subscribe, and keep watching and learning and making a positive difference in the world.